Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, so Project Purple is partnering with the Inspire to Run podcast to spread awareness in hopes of creating a world without this devastating disease. Inspire to Run podcast helps you along your health and fitness journey and supports important causes like pancreatic cancer awareness. If you're thinking about joining Team Project Purple at one of your local running events, check out the Inspire to Run podcast. They cover insightful running topics with fitness experts and inspiring stories from runners to help reach your goals. They also have resources to help you prepare for your next race, even if it is your very first race. To learn more about the Inspire to Run podcast, visit inspiretorun.co and you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. We also have our virtual event series happening in November with our Turkey Trot uh, virtual series. That's going to be happening in November. To learn more about these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from West Virginia, pancreatic cancer survivor, Jen Wells. Jen, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I I, I know we've got a wonderful team here at Project Purple that does a lot of uh, outreach to the, the pancreatic cancer community. I believe I came across your page and I sent it to the team Um you do quite a bit of running, and I know running's been a big focus for us here at Project Purple since the very beginning. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to talk to you about your journey with pancreatic cancer and how it intertwines into running. Because as you heard in the intro, we do so much running. Uh, we have so many marathon teams throughout the world now with uh, with our London and Berlin teams um, that were recently added over the last two years that we're sending runners to these world marathon majors all across the world now. Uh, so it's super exciting to have you here. As I mentioned before, we hit record. The first segment's always kind of the guest opportunity to kind of share their background. Some people have, probably have no idea who you are. That's a good thing because they're going to hear <laughs> about it today. Hopefully your friends and family will listen to this and they'll know a little bit, you know, hopefully they know a lot about you. Uh, but for those that don't, um, you know, this is really the guest opportunity to kind of share their background with pancreatic cancer. And as I said before, we hit record. You can stay as high level as you want, or you can get in the weeds. And with that, the microphone is yours. All right. Um, I was diagnosed on May 21st of 2022. Uh, that March, I had gone to the doctors for my annual checkup. My lab work was perfect. I was the best shape of my life. I was training for my first full marathon. I had ran eight half marathons before that and some mud runs and five and 10 Ks. Um, felt absolutely perfect in March. About a month later, I just started getting indigestion and some mild back pain, but I'm a nurse. I work night shift. Um, I just chalked it all up for that. And then the fatigue set in and I, I couldn't run. I couldn't go to the gym. And that's when I knew something was wrong. So I went to local ER, they did an ultrasound and a CT, and I had um, a pancreatic mass and five tumors in my liver. So I was already stage four by the time they diagnosed me. Uh, first doctor I saw at the hospital said, well, if you're lucky, you, you'll get three months, um, maybe 12 months. And I immediately left the hospital and went somewhere else. So I came home and I called everywhere I could. 
Luckily, I was able to get into John Hopkins Hospital for a clinical trial. So I have been very lucky so far because the clinical trial is working for me. I've been in it now for, I think I'm on cycle 14. So that's 14 months there. Uh, I'm the very last person in the clinical trial. Unfortunately, it didn't work for everybody else. Uh, there's They started with 120 people in this clinical trial across the world, and they're down to about 20 of us left. So um, in the beginning, I was still running like crazy, uh, going to the gym, feeling good. And then, of course, chemo and immunotherapy kicks my butt. <laughs> so I got down to walking. So I'm slowly getting back into running, but I still get my miles in every day. Um, I, today actually was the first day I had got back into the gym. Today's the first day of school here. So, um, oh. once my kid ba- got back into school, I was like, all right, I got to get back to the gym. So, I uh, went in, did a couple miles and did a good leg workout. So I, I got to ask, and I know my mom always said to never ask a woman her age, but, uh, what, <laughs> how old are you? I am 44. I was diagnosed when I was 43 years old. I had zero risk factors, absolutely no family history. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink a lot. Um, I was, like I said, the best shape of my life. So I wasn't overweight. I had none of the risk factors. Um, the doctor said I had a 1% chance of ever getting this disease. So so what kind of, you said you were a nurse. So this is second follow-up question. Mm-hmm. What does uh, like where in, in medical are you or medicine? I should say, like, are you in the ER, general practitioner in the hospital, like OB? I, I actually have worked psychiatric for the past 15 years with uh, mental illness and addiction. Luckily, I'm in a um, a close knit uh, on like inpatient unit. We only have about mm-hmm. 15 patients. So uh, and I'm grateful enough that my doctor is able to create a position for me that I can work from home right now. So for the, since last October, I've been able to do um, some like online chart auditing stuff from home since I can't get into work. And you're saying, so prior to, and I always ask this question. So prior to 5-21-22, when you got this diagnosis, um, which you said really was the fatigue, the, the massive fatigue and the, and the, the lower back pain that really kind of, there wasn't anything. I mean, I know hindsight, we always say is 2020. Um, but so was there anything that you can look back here in your 43 or 44 years? Cause you're 44 now <laughs> that, you know, Hey, there was that week where, you know, I thought we ate something, I ate something really bad, but I had like this GI issue. Um, you know, for the whole week. No, honestly, no. When I went to the doctors in March, I felt great. And a couple of weeks later, like I said, I just kept getting like a gnawing pain in my stomach. And then only when I worked night shift, I would get this pain across my top of my back. And I had a desk job and I never had a desk job before. So I thought, oh, it's just me sitting all night. And then the fatigue, I just assumed it was because I didn't sleep much because I'm a single mom, two boys. Uh, work in night shift. I and then I had one day shift during the week, so I just chalked it up at that as that. So my PA buddy recommended that I take like um, Nexium twice a day for two mm. weeks, get rid of coffee and you know all that kind of stuff, thinking I had a stomach ulcer. So I did that for two weeks and nothing helped. And the day he called me on Saturday morning, he's like, "You need to go to the hospital." And I was like, "No, I'm fine." 
I said, I got to go shopping. It's my kid's birthday. So I went shopping for three hours. And normally I'm a, um, I am a shopping addict. I could have gone for three days straight, never stopped. And after three hours, I could barely drive myself to the emergency room. So I knew something was wrong because I was just completely exhausted. But no, I had no pain, no stomach issues prior to that or nothing, no back or nothing. So crazy. I mean, sometimes, you know, to, to go from in March and I always, we've had runners on before, um, our people don't have run, right. That get sick. And I, I always tend to say like runners are, I mean, I don't want to sound like a jerk here. Like if you're doing a half marathon, you, you, you know what a little bit of pain is. Right. And if you're training for a marathon, you know what even more pain is. So yeah. runners tend to have like a higher pain tolerance, I guess, because, you know, you've got to dig deep and, you know, being out there for two to three hours to run a half marathon, or even if you're, you're fast, you do it in an hour and and half that hurts <laughs> uh, running was, fast hurts. I was actually training for, I had a half marathon scheduled on the first week in June. So I was, you know, the last two weeks of my um, half marathon training. So I was running like my weekend run that week was 11 a mile run. Um, and I, when I, when I ran my halves, I always stuck with like a nine thirty ten 10 minute pace. And I was still running at nine thirty ten 10 minute pace that the week or two before I got diagnosed. Um, my doctor that I saw in March actually was my very first appointment with her. I had to switch doctors because I had switched jobs and um, she just couldn't believe it. She's like, how did I meet you? You were perfect shape. She said, then a month later you were stage four. She's like, it, she's just never seen anything like that before. So crazy. Um, so you get to Hopkins. So you said that first doctor basically gave you the the three months kind of speech like hey this isn't good um you get into hopkins and you get in this clinical trial now you, you've mentioned a couple of things immunotherapy so is this an immunotherapy trial let's talk a little bit about that yeah so i take um there's gemcitabine and abraxane is a, one of the standard uh chemo regimens for uh pancreatic cancer so i take those for three weeks and then i was on two immunotherapy drugs i um, continued on those drugs until last month. Um, one of the immunotherapy drugs was suspended because what we believe it was causing bone loss. I um, broke my shoulder in May and a man in England who's also on the trial also broke his shoulder. Um, so a few people that have been on that trial we've noticed have been breaking bones and have a weakness and stuff. So they suspended the one drug. So now I'm only on one immunotherapy drug. Excuse me. So in terms of, I got a couple of questions about the trial then. So you've had good quality of life. I know you said you just, because of school and scheduling stuff, you just went back to the gym today. So I, that would sound like things are optimistic in terms of activity and what you're able to do. Yeah, I was doing great. Um, I didn't have the typical signs or the symptoms of uh, chemo or anything. I just had a lot of inflammation in my body. So I would have to constantly stretch things out to get things moving. And as long as I was moving, I was feeling good. If I sat down, I, I felt like an old lady getting back up. Everything just kind of hurt. Um, yeah. So in May, actually, I left for two weeks and went and traveled all around Ireland I went hiking mountains and walking 10 miles a day through every city I could get a hold of in Ireland. Um, so I took five weeks off of chemo then, came back and was scanned. 
Uh, I have zero tumors in my liver now and my pancreas has, the tumor has shrunk in half. So everything was good to go. Start back on chemo and the pain just sat in again. So there's the CA-19 number that's the tumor, tumor marker number. Mine is never really correlated with my tumor. It was high, It was only like in the 400s when I got diagnosed. But come Christmas last year, it had been down to normal limits. Well, slowly it kept creeping up. So they were afraid, you know, I had progression somewhere. We've done bone scans and PET scans and CTs and MRIs. Nothing spread anywhere. So they thought it is just inflammation from that immunotherapy drug. So I took another five weeks off of chemo. Um, actually, I just started back two weeks ago and having two treatments in since May really kicked my butt after that. <laughs> yeah. So it knocked my immune system out. So now I, I get back this Wednesday again to, to get going back on schedule again, hopefully. But so your 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 last scan being a positive scan, has there been talk now of potentially like surgery as an option or maybe getting off the immunotherapy and going more like a fluforinox or some other sort of cocktail to kind of maybe kick in and maybe knock everything out or knock things down a little bit further? Um, well, I've been extremely lucky. Every scan I've ever gotten has always showed... Um, shrinkage or everything's been stable so far. And they had told me originally, if I had six months of stable scans, I could take a break. I could go on a chemo pill. I could just, um, whatever I wanted to do. So in my, I, and I had this option when I went back here a few weeks ago, since everything was going so well, I decided to stay in the clinical trial because if this immunotherapy drug is the one that's saving my life, I kind of want to stay on it. Cause if I left it, and came back to West Virginia and just had chemo here, I wouldn't be able to go back to that trial. So um, I'm going to stick it out for a few more months. And I think if things stay stable, I'm going to take a few months off, like December, or January, kind of, and just play it by ear and take time off when I think I need it. So uh, a question that probably maybe someone listening is probably thinking like, how did you get into the trial? So you went from West Virginia, and I know we like fast forwarded through that. Which I assume, well, where, how far is Hopkins for you? I drive four hours one way every okay, week. So that's not, I mean, that's, that's a drive. Um, yeah. I know here in, we're in Connecticut, you know, four hours you can be from, you know, New York City to probably Rhode Island. You know, you could cut through Connecticut and not blink, you know, in two and a half hours. So, you know, four hours is a, is a good drive. Um, where I think people here in, in New England think like, oh, two hours and you're in another state, you know, or, you know, in, in a half hour, you can be in another state depending on where you live. So four hours is, is a lot. And then factor in that you're doing treatment as well. So that, that probably takes a toll on your body naturally. So how did you get there to Hopkins, like, and into this trial in particular? When I got diagnosed, I was in my very small hometown local ER, and they sent me directly to West Virginia University, which is the biggest hospital in my entire state. Um, that's where the doctor pretty much like wrote me off. Um, I left there and went to another hospital close by, and that oncologist was wonderful, but he told me, if you want to survive this, you need a clinical trial. He says, there's none in West Virginia. So I went home and I called... Pittsburgh. I called any like Columbus and Cleveland, anywhere I could think of that was doable to be driving there. 
And um, I made my own referrals. I went to the doctors. I took my records. I went and seen everybody. And John Hopkins was the only one I was actually um, able to to partake in because of, you know, you got to meet the genetic testing and all the clinical markers right. and stuff. And I hadn't been treated yet. So a lot of places um, wanted you if you had not had any kind of treatment yet. So, yeah. So it, it's just so fascinating, um, Jen, because I think what happens, th- there's a couple pieces here to unwind here that I'd love to maybe spend a couple minutes on. So one is, you said like, hey, you weren't doing treatment first. And I think what happens a lot of times, at least I see as a patient advocate, like patients are almost pushed into treatment like ASAP. Like, hey, you get diagnosed on a Tuesday, like let's get the portacap put in on Wednesday. Let's start treatment on a Friday. And I always, and we've had clinicians come on and say, hey, listen, like a month is not going to do anything in terms of you know, disease progression where where you're at the point where like, hey, like there's a point of no return because you waited a month to get a second opinion or to to kind of figure out like what the proper protocol would be. And, and so there there is this rush, I, I feel, from certain folks. Um, but we always advocate like, hey, like take your time. So do you think that came maybe from the doctor giving you that first, like, Hey, you have three months or was it, Hey, like, I understand this because I'm in the medical community and I kind of have to weigh like my options here and see where the best fit is for me and and what I'm up against. Well, the man that um, told me that I had three months left, he wasn't even an oncologist. He was the gastroenterologist that did my, um, my biopsy of my pancreas and my liver. So he walked out the door and I knew exactly what pancreatic cancer meant. I'm a nurse. The man pretty much read to me what Google says. If you Google, what's the statistics of pancreatic cancer? That's what he told me. Um, So I didn't, I mean, honestly, I wasn't, it's still, I mean, it, it took a long time for it to hit me that I had it. I stayed calm through the whole thing. It was just like, I don't know. I must've just been in shock or something. So when that doctor told me that, I mean, I was just like, okay. I was like, I clearly, I I'm running a marathon. I'm not going to die in three months. That's kind of how I felt. So that like the second oncologist or the first oncologist I saw in West Virginia, he was wonderful. He was going to start me on full Fairinox and which is a lot stronger than gem and abraxane. Um, and it would have been fine probably. And he's like, you could still work through it and everything. And, um, I, but when he's looked at me and said, if you want to survive, you need to get a clinical trial. And luckily that doctor's still here in my background. If I need something local in West Virginia, he does help take care of me and stuff. So, so, so amazing that there's someone in the community, you know, and, and my other piece of this, you know, and we talk a lot about this is access to quality healthcare. Right. And so, like you said, like West Virginia, like, really isn't much in terms of clinical trials, right? And even going to the the major university, you, you got the answer you got. So we we talk, there's a lot of talk, I think, now in the country about, you know, access and inequity and, you know, equity in terms of like, does everyone get the same care? And, you know, I, I've been blessed, like we've gone overseas to visit cancer centers and we've had international oncologists come on the podcast and talk about like the, the differences, right? Like, so in, in, in certain countries in Europe, most of them, and, and even in the Middle East, because we've had uh, researchers on from Israel, like 
regardless of where you go, like you get that same top quality, um, you know, in terms of, of where you may be in the country, um, which is different here, right? Like it's crazy that someone in West Virginia has to drive all the way to Johns Hopkins to get into a clinical trial. Yeah. I um, left the, my first hospital stay. They handed me discharge papers. The nurse didn't even walk me out. They never gave me a follow-up for an oncology appointment. It was like, if, I mean, I'm grateful that I'm a nurse and I have some kind of medical background because if I would have walked out of there, it, just somebody else that didn't know any better, I wouldn't have thought, you know, it was that bad. If, you know, you would think the hospital would set you up with that kind of stuff. So you have to be your own advocate. That's for sure. You hit the nail right on top of the head. It is so powerful what you just said uh, of being an advocate. And we always, we talk a lot about that on this podcast, about making sure that you advocate for yourself, no matter how uncomfortable it may feel. Um, Because I think a lot of people don't want to be that person. Um, You know, I've heard stories where, you know, people don't want to ask the question because they don't want to get put on a naughty list. I don't know if oncologists have like a naughty list. Like, I think that's (laughs) illegal to do, but like, I don't know. It's just kind of crazy like that people think that way in the sense of, you know, like they don't want to ask certain questions because they feel, you know, oncologists or, you know, staff are going to like hold back something. And I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. Shouldn't be that way. No. Um, I know this is another, this is another question that I have. I, I know you mentioned like no family history, no prior conditions. I'm sure Hopkins did a genetic profile, but you have mentioned some things like that, that you mentioned, like within terms of like the Genzar and Abraxine plus the immunotherapy drugs, the genetics, like, is there anything under the hood that anything that was found? Nothing. No, I've got nothing. I didn't have the BRCA gene. Um, nothing showed up that it was a hereditary, anything. I mean, I, cause that my fear was like, you know, did I get it from my family? Am I going to pass it on to my kids and nothing? I mean, nobody can explain why I got it. Wow. And the, the trial now, um, there's 20 people left in the entire world in the clinical trial. Is that right? Yeah. Then that's coming off 150, I think you mentioned was the number. Yes. Wow. I was the youngest one at John Hopkins in the trial. The next youngest was about 65 years old. So the average age, obviously, for pancreatic cancer is, you know, mid 70s. So a lot of those people had progression of cancer or they just couldn't handle the side effects and they just decided to like opt out of the trial. You know, Jen, I'm going to say something here. I think the statistics are wrong. Oh, definitely. Now that I'm... Go ahead. No, you go. Go. Ladies first. Um, when on, if you're on like Facebook, on the pancreatic sites and stuff, there are more and more people being diagnosed, even in their thirties, there's a nine-year-old boy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that has pancreatic cancer. He's the only known child in the world to have it. So it's far, it's, I talk to more people that are my age or maybe 10 years older than me that have it more than the older people. Yeah. I I mean, I, I just, I know from 14 years, we've, we've, dealt with two boys. There was a boy in Florida who was about 11 or 12 when he was diagnosed. And then there was a boy in Kentucky who was 
10 or 11, very, okay. very rare, um, but it happens, right? But in terms of like, you know, and this is kind of some of the messaging that I hope we have tried to uh, change, you know, that you mentioned like, oh, it's old people. And I mean, I guess age is a number, right? Because there's 85-year-olds that can kick like a 50-year-old's butt in like sports oh, yeah. and running, right? Like as runners, right? Like uh, I'm sure in your half marathons, there are plenty of people a lot older than you that passed oh, you. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Like I've been there. I've been there and gone. I look over and I go, mother of pearl, like this person <laughs> blowing by me and they're like 30 years older. Um so, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that we've seen in the last, like, really, like, three to four years uh, in the podcast is we have interviewed a lot of young people. I mean, just in the last six months, um, I know someone that was 28, someone in their 30s, uh, 40s, um, early 50s, you know, so, and, and just from the interaction, I, I the other thing, too, I, I think happens, too, Jen, and maybe you've experienced this, you mentioned a little bit about, like, before this, you probably weren't on any Facebook pages that dealt with pancreatic cancer. And then when you're in it, it's like, it seems like it's always around you, right? Um, but I think there is something, and I know there was some interesting, you know, naturally with the science, you need the data to back it up, right? And there was some interesting data, I believe about six months ago, like beginning of the year that showed that there was a rise in female cases in younger females and no one had a reasoning why they look statistically over the last five years and and the average age for female diagnoses was going down um at a pretty astonishing rate you know given you know where it was so you know there is something to be said it's just it's just very interesting when you have a 43 year old healthy person um with no prior history of cancers no health issues um you know, there's nothing under the hood, as we say in genetics, but then gets, you know, a stage four cancer. Um, it, you know, it's hard to say, and I know, I don't know if anyone has, uh, has mentioned this to you. I know some scientists, we, we've had plenty of them on, and, and I know it's ranged from, you know, some people say, well, you know, these tumors are around, they're just slow growing, right? And then when they explode, they explode, right? So, you know, we've had people on here that say, well, some of them, you know, maybe they're a lesion for 10 years. And then for some reason, we don't know what, you know, science doesn't know why they get activated. And then, you know, they show up on scans or they cause issues that are, um, you know, making people aware, whether it's back pain or GI issues or, you know, wherever they may uh, present themselves. So without any previous MRIs, it's kind of hard to say, you know, um, I know that's a theory that a lot of uh, scientists and oncologists have talked about previously on the podcast that it's, that it's hard really to say, but then there's others that, you know, we've had people that, you know, come on and, you know, they've had scans and, you know, so we had a guest that had a scan, got into a car accident six months later, and then, you know, they do the scan for the, the accident and then they mm -hmm. see, you know, a small tumor. Yeah. You that's know, how so, I was diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? Um, we don't have an answer for that. Uh, but the, the, the positives here is that this trial is going well. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that you have to drive four hours to get into a trial, which, you know, the system is not perfect and it's certainly not where it needs to be. Uh, but hopefully by, you know, sharing your journey here, you know, maybe someone who gets diagnosed now will advocate for themselves to do the things 
you know, that you've done, you know, to, to not take that first answer up front as, okay, this is what it is, but no, to dig in, to further, you know, educate themselves and to find doctors and clinicians that are willing to work with patients and try whatever they can for positive outcome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any of the websites of the big hospitals, they always have a second line referral phone number. And I just started calling all of them. So do you ever look back? Like how, how long have you been in nursing? Uh, I graduated in 2006. So, okay. So just 17 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you ever look back and like think, and I know hindsight, this is like a low, I, I'll, I'll start with my loaded questions here. There's no right or wrong. They're just like thought provoking. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever look back at that since this whole thing and said, Hey, like if I was in a different field, how would that outcome have been in terms of where you navigated through that? But being in the medical field kind of like maybe allowed you to have that mindset or those thoughts or that process. Oh, I, I mean, it's definitely helped me uh, advocate for myself and p- know what I want. I've had lots of options of, I don't, I don't have the option of surgery. So I have the different options of, you know, radiation or chemo or immunotherapy. Um, and knowing the medical background that I do, I'm able to understand it and make, I think, better choices for myself. Um, a lot Last year on Pancreatic Awareness Month, I just loaded my Facebook up with all kinds of facts and figures and risk factors. And all I wanted to do was educate people because a lot of people have no clue what your pancreas even does. And they're like, well, can't you just get a transplant? And I'm like, no, it doesn't really work that way. So um, it it's just amazing that um, some people go through this and they have no clue what they're doing, what meds they're on. Um, I talk to people that have it online and they don't know. I'm like, well, what chemo are you on? They're like, I don't know. Um, I'm like, you got to ask questions. You need to know what meds are given because I mean, I even had a travel nurse one time. All she did was mix one of my meds goes with like dextrose and the other one goes with normal saline. It's not going to kill me probably, but she had them wrong. So it's good to know what you're getting and how you're supposed to be taking it. Cause I mean, I was like, um, that's not right. You need to switch those bags, you know? So people need to pay attention and know what they're, uh, what they're getting. So what advice would you give someone then? This is a great segue into that question, you know, given your experience as a clinician um, and and in that field, but then also given that like you're in that seat now, like you're the patient. Um, I would just say, do your research, do your homework. Uh, They, they, most of the times you have options on treatments. So, I mean, if you don't know the answers, find the answers, you know, ask to talk to a nurse or um, somebody that's been through it before, get all the information that you can before you start um, any kind of treatment, I believe. Did you find any um, websites particularly helpful during your journey? Like when you started kind of like really diving into like the clinical trials or, you know, certain things that, as you mentioned, the doctors were saying? Uh, I went to the, what's the main pancreatic, uh, cancer. They sent me books and folders and I mean, on nutrition, on everything, on tips on chemo and stuff. 
honestly, when I went to UPMC, there was, they had a library up there and I just talked to the woman working there and she walked me through and she gave me books and everything. So, um, yeah, anyone that I ever asked for help was always graciously willing to help you. The people at John Hopkins, I mean, I, I talk to them daily, whether I'm texting them or emailing them or calling them. And so, uh, I mean, normally, if you can find someone that's willing to deal with you bugging them every day for, with a silly question or something, I mean, it's a good a good doctor or a good nurse for me. It's awesome that you're having a positive, such a positive experience. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, that that's so powerful, you know, that you mentioned, you know, and, and hopefully people really take that and think about that as they go through their own experience. I know it's it, it's a lot, right? Like getting that diagnosis. I think people initially, you know, it's like the shock and awe. And sometimes it's like almost analysis paralysis. And it's almost like, you know, uh, you know, people just don't know what to do. Um, but there's, you know, having action, reaching out, information gathering, that's all positive, right? The, I, I think sometimes people tend to, and I'm not trying to, you know, I, I think it's just normal for the diagnosis, like, hop on a, a Facebook page and, you know, see some of the negative versus the positive. Yeah. Um, it's easier to go down a, a dark hole if you get on there because there's so many sad stories and yeah. then you'll get talking to people and then they won't, you'll see them disappear or uh, the statistics is just depressing itself. So <laughs> you definitely want to go and hear good stories and uh, people surviving it and, you know, um, different positive things like that, because it's easy to get wrapped up in how negative this disease really is. So do you think this is another loaded question here? You you deal with when you were nursing um, in the mental illness and psych unit. So, you know, we talk a lot about uh, mental health, you know, with this disease and you sound very positive. You're very optimistic here with everything that's going on. You just mentioned like, Hey, there is a, there's a reality, a very negative reality here. Like how, how did you, you know, deal with that? But do you ever look back at like, Hey, you, you dealt with the mental illness side of it as a profession for so long that again, it almost prepared you for your own mental strength. And I will even weave into the running because you were saying like 11 miles. Everyone's different. I, I think, you know, some people could say like a 5K is mentally draining for them, right? Mm -hmm. But I think when you start to get into like anytime after like five miles, like those still suck. Like, you know, like seven, <laughs> eight, like it's going to suck a little bit. And that's like, you're playing this mental gymnastics with you. So my question here is like, you look at all this as like, ways that have prepared you for this or how does that you know how does your mindset like how have you been able to like manage that i i, I agree i think all of this has definitely helped me i tell everyone i'm op i'm obnoxiously optimistic um the psychiatrist that i work for when i got diagnosed i just kind of walked in like i am now and i'm just like i'm gonna beat it i mean i don't have any other option i'm a single mom you know i got kids i take care of them. i said i gotta beat this and you know a, a year later he's just like you really have never backed down. You have always just said, yeah, I got this, you know, no problems. It's, you know, I'm going to fight it. And I'm like, I try, but, um, running those long miles, definitely you get in your head. I mean, that was always like therapy for me, um, until you hit that wall. And then <laughs> of course you, you have some negative thoughts there, but, um, running always was like 
therapy for me. It's just like I could get out. I can either dive into my thoughts or I could completely lose myself on the pavement and not even have a thought in my head and it would clear my head. Um, but with, when it came with my patients, I was always the, the bouncy tripper one at work, trying to cheer up my patients and stuff. Um, cause if you think your life is bad, I guarantee you my patients, I've, I've met people in my nursing that you just want to cry with them. Cause you're just like, you didn't have a chance, you know, their life is just so bad. So even now with the terminal illness, I've still met people with lives, you know, and issues and problems worse than this. So, um, when you have an 11 year old, you have to kind of remain positive and push through. Um, so there are times that, you know, you get down the rabbit hole, normally in the middle of the night when you're on Google or something stupid, you go down that rabbit hole. Uh, I actually met a man here um, in a town next to ours, same age, same cancer, same everything. And him and I have kind of made friends and um, we'll talk back and forth. And if I, if I get those negative thoughts or anything, he's normally the one I'll text, you know, and he, my little cheerleader and I do the same for him. So um, it's kind of nice knowing someone personally that's going through the exact same thing as you. Well, it's so powerful because I think, you know, we, we say that often here um, because you, you can't do it alone. And so, uh, you know, having support, having a team, having, you know, someone who might be going through it um, as well, it's so critical because again, no one fights alone um, and you need that support. So on that, I know you've mentioned your boys a bit and you mentioned, you know, Levin, like what, what's it been for them? I mean, I'm sure they know, you know, mom's not doing well. And, you know, this is, this kind of like tough, um, you know, to see someone you love go through this. Uh, My oldest son is 20 and he treats me no different. He says he's going to keep me strong he says he's not babying me. He's not taking care of me because I'm still I I try to keep everything, you know, doing everything myself. And most yeah. days I do. So he he still roughhouses with me and he's just like, I'm not treating you any different. I'm keeping you strong. So if he sees me struggling, he always um, comes out to help or whatever. Um, but yeah, he's my tough one. My little one is 11. He's a mama's boy. He's my biggest help. If I don't feel good, he's the one taking care of me. He's, you know, helps. And when I broke my shoulder, he, he helped do laundry and he mopped the floors. He'll go get, you know, food and anything I need, take care of the dog. I mean, he's my little, he, my right hand man. So, um, I'm very honest with my children from day one. I mean, I told him, you know, Hey, I'm probably gonna be dead in the year. I mean, I just, you can't sugarcoat it. Um, but luckily I've always had good news at all my doctor's appointments. So, uh, they know I've beat the odds already. Um, but I mean, they know that, you know, something might happen one day. You just never know. But as of right now, they still see their mom, um, taking care of the house and working and going to the gym and still doing what I, what we did before, just a little slower. So when you have that conversation with them and now it's a year later, do you have a new conversation with them? Um, my oldest one, he understands that he gets it. Um, we talk just like anyone else, but my little one, I think sometimes he forgets, you know, that how sick I really am. And so every now and then it'll circle back. Like if I'm too tired to go play basketball or something in the evening, I break it down to him. I'm just like, you know, um, 
we're lucky so far things have been working, but you know, this next scan, you never know what's going to pop up or, you know, something might happen or, you know, it sucks having the cancer, the mom with cancer, I'm sure. So, uh, luckily I, I haven't had to break any bad news to them. So I guess I'll get across that bridge when I get there. I can't imagine. Um, and I'm not here to, I, I think like we've had, uh, people come on and you know, that you have to have those tough conversations. I mean, it's, there's a reality to this. Um, yeah, so I, I don't appreciate want to you wake, sharing that. I don't want him to wake up one day and something happened to mom and him be like, nobody told me she was going to die from this, you yeah. know? So I just be telling the truth. It's, uh, I think a conversation that no parent ever wants to have with their kids, but as, uh, as we, we just said, there's a reality to, to life. And I, I think one thing, Jen, that you, you've kind of echoed here is that, um, you know, time is all we have, like, and time is never guaranteed. Like we're tomorrow's not guaranteed to anyone regardless. Right. And so I think, um, you know, there's there's no judging on anyone's part here. I, I think that's just the, the reality of the situation. You know, to have those conversations, and and to your point, like I think you'd rather have the conversation. I'm in the same boat with you. I have two boys, you know, 17 and, and 18. And when my dad got sick, um, you know, we were pretty. They were very young, but I, I don't know what they understood. But you know, we told them that you know, Nani no no was uh, was really sick. We didn't know how much time we had with them. And so that's why every day was important. Now, at that age of, you know, they were five and six, they really understand that? Probably not. Um, but, you know, I, I think you, 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 there's no right or wrong to it, uh, but there's a reality to it all. Um, so thank you for sharing that because I know that's probably not easy to have those conversations with your boys, but also to, to share that, that intimate information with our audience, but it's also very powerful for people to hear that. For sure. I, I've got a couple questions left here for you. Um, and then we're going to share where our audience can connect and follow you. What did, first one here, um, just overall, someone gets diagnosed today, given what you've experienced, what you've done, what is the advice that we, you would give that person if someone reached out to you today in your local community or from afar and said, hey, Jen, I've just been diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. What are the things I should be doing? Um, I mean, find yourself a great team of doctors to take care of you and get a plan and, you know, start the plan out and then live your life, honestly. So my 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 motto this whole time is find the joy and eat the cake. So I find joy in every single day, no matter if it's just something silly, but I, I think people go living through life every day and they don't find the joy and they don't do what they want to do. I went two years and didn't have sugar when I was running. And now I'm like, bring on the cake. If I'm not going to be able to eat one day, I want the cake. So, um, I think, and honestly, exercise has saved me through all of this. I think I trained so hard for all my races and I was in such good shape. It helped me tremendously. Um, even on my worst days, I will get on my treadmill and I will walk a really slow mile or I'll take a walk in the neighborhood or something, but walking, stretching, um, hydrating. I mean, it's, you just have to put your, yourself as a priority. You have to take care of yourself because chemo kicks your butt. I mean, it, 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 it really is hard on you. Um, so if you take care of yourself, it's a lot, it makes it a whole lot easier. 
so powerful. I, I love that. Finding the joy in eating your cake. I love that. <laughs> I love how you threw you didn't eat sugar for two years because that's what runners do. <laughs> we do those yeah. crazy things. Uh, my last question here, and, and this is always, uh, I say a loaded question in the sense that there's no right or wrong to this. It's how you define it and what your answer is. How do you define the term pancreatic cancer? Oh, evil. <laughs> um, it's it's a horrible disease. I mean, it's that's why it's the silent killer. I mean, it has no rhyme or reason. My tumor is right. It's like I compare it to Spider-Man's web, you know, when Spider-Man shoots his web out and it just like clings to everything. My tumor is wrapped around every vasculature that goes through my liver and my pancreas, Uh, my hepatic artery, my mesenteric, my, I mean, everything. So there's no chance of ever probably cutting that out of there. Uh, So it's, it's a very ugly disease, the way it spreads, uh, the way it grows, the way I mean, it's just deadly. It's just awful. So yeah, it's evil is what I would call it. Said it perfect. Jen, if our audience uh, wants to connect with you or someone listening might be going through a very similar experience, found strength in this episode, where's the best place for people to connect or to reach out to you? I know we mentioned social media in the beginning. I don't know if that's better or if there's another place. Yeah. um, My Instagram and my Facebook are JenWells13. I think they're both that number. So they can find me on there. Instagram's probably the best one to go for. That's where I follow most pancreatic sites. And that's where I've met the most people on so far. I see it here. Jen Wells 13. We'll there follow. it is. Awesome. Jen, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here and giving me the opportunity to interview you and share your journey. Yeah, it's great. It's a great thing you're doing. I appreciate the the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you liked today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That is a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe. Mm